This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome back to BIEB 152, Evolution of Infectious Disease. This is lecture number 11. And today, what I'm going to do is review the material from lectures 1 through 8. That material is going to be on the midterm. Um, and so I will go over the subjects that I think uh, were really critical to understanding this material. There will certainly be material on the exam that I do not cover in this lecture, uh, but is a part of the, of the slides and the previous lectures. So um, one of my goals for this lecture is not just to review the material, but to go over some subjects that uh, I've had lots of questions about so I can help clarify those subjects. And the other goal is to uh, make connections between the different lectures. I try to do that within the lectures, um, but I, I don't always have time to do that. And so this time I have the, the opportunity to make these connections. And so hopefully um, by building different connections in your brain, it'll help you remember this material a little bit better. It'll be more interesting. Um, and it'll show you sort of how the class is building uh, and then when we go into the next, next uh, phase of the class, you'll be learning more specific um, ways of analyzing uh, modern diseases and also just more facts about those diseases and how those diseases evolve. Checking the temperature on COVID-19. Okay, you guys have seen this. Um, you've seen this graph many times. This is a new one, I think, from yesterday. Um, and the question is, is that it feels like we all have this sort of psychological idea that, uh, you know, we would just have to shelter in place for April and then May would come and summer was coming and that we would all be able to sort of reopen our, our governments and reopen our, our states and reopen the country. Um, and so cell phone data is suggesting that people are already beginning to relax um, their shelter in place and are beginning to travel much more than they were when the shutdown be, uh, first happened. Um, and then the question is whether or not this is appropriate. You know, should we be reopening our government? And of course, this decision should always be based on data. And so if we look at the data for the entire United States, um, we can see that our actions of sheltering in place have uh, have stopped the exponential growth of COVID-19 um, and that we've basically, we've bent the curve and we've caused it to plateau, um, but we haven't caused it to actually drop in its, its rate of spread through time. It's basically stable at about 30,000 new cases per time. There does look like there's a little bit sloping downwards of that trend, but, but overall it seems that we just have a consistent level of spread of COVID-19. So just looking at this data, I would say that I don't know if we should change our behaviors. Certainly if we do change our behaviors and we begin to go to stores again and things like that, uh, we must alter the way that we used to uh, go to stores or go out uh, in ways that uh, continue to effectively social distance, maybe without us actually being um, isolated in our, in our houses. So I am a little bit nervous that we'll have another uptick. Of course, remember, we had this theory that perhaps the disease uh, will be a seasonal disease 
and won't spread as well in the summer. And so it might be the case that we open things back up and the disease is unable to spread because it's so hot, it's sensitive to UV light, and it's sensitive to um, uh, humidity. Now, that's, that's a huge assumption. And I guess I would like to see better data on whether or not this disease is going to be seasonal before um, taking the risk of uh, triggering a, a second rise in the disease. And so, as I've said before, I don't think it's great to look at uh, the United States as a whole and look at these numbers as a whole. Um, we really do have to think much more locally. And so if we look at the data for individual states, there are, and this is also from the New York Times, sorry I didn't uh, cite it here, but uh, you can see that there's kind of three behaviors in the different states. And so there's many states in which, and so that's this, this top behavior up here, in which uh, the disease, the rate at which the disease is spreading is continuing to increase. And so if you're in one of those states, that, you know, you don't want to change your behavior in the way of um, opening up and facilitating more human-to-human interactions. You want to change your behavior in a way to uh, dampen human-to-human interactions and dampen uh, the spread of the disease. And so uh, those states, it's not advised to, um, to reopen, especially it, it doesn't seem like it has, has had too much of an effect. Um, or it had an effect and they've changed their behavior and now the disease is beginning to increase again. That's the case for Vermont and Alaska. Uh, so we in California are in this other category, which is, you know, it looks like we've changed our behaviors and now we kind of have more of a plateau pattern. And so this is a case where my question is, why stop doing a good thing? Obviously, we slowed things down. We slowed the spread of the disease, but we didn't drive it out of our states. And it's still spreading relatively fast, um, spreading, you know, in most of the states as, as fast as it was on the, on the highest day in which uh, it spread the most. And so I would say there, I don't know, I'd be a little bit more hesitant. Now, certainly what, what Gavin Newsom, the governor, um, has released yesterday um, for Friday that some stores are going to be open, but that's for curbside pickup. Um, and there's some other things that will be relaxed, such as people are allowed to work in offices that uh, can't work remotely from home, you know, some other, other things. And so the, those are pretty minor. I don't know if that's going to trigger an uptick. And it seems just that people are on their own um, beginning to come out of their houses more and um, interact a little bit more. So hopefully we don't cause a, another uptick there. But California, we have been pretty cautious. And so I am, I'm pretty confident in, in that if we follow the state guidelines, nothing too bad will happen. And then the other states, um, there's another category. And this is the, where the, the, the numbers of cases are really declining. Um, and it's very promising. And um, yeah, I think in these states, give it a shot, uh, open up, um, but do it with proper surveillance. Have a lot of tests so that when people, if the disease starts to spread, you'll be able to detect it quickly and, and uh, shelter in place again. Remember, uh, many lectures ago, we talked about that sort of up and down spiking of the disease and how to maintain it at low enough, low enough levels so that we never overwhelm our our healthcare system, but what that required was constant surveillance and responding to when the disease um, begins to spread by sheltering in place again. Uh, the one example on the screen that I think is really interesting is New York, 
um, you know, New York was, was crazy. Um, tons and tons and tons of people uh, were infected. And uh, it turns out that they are now doing um, a lot of testing uh, for antibodies. And there are some problems with these tests, but at a population level, um, they do give you a read on how prevalent the disease actually is. And the, it looks like somewhere between 10 and 20% of New York. So that's an extraordinary number of people, not just New York City, but upstate New York as well, um, have experienced COVID-19 and are, and are recovered. Um, what that means is that they're beginning to approach a level in which um, it's going to be harder for the disease to spread just because there's not as many uh, sensitive people to the disease. And so they're, they're, they're not at the point yet where they have what's called herd immunity. We'll go over the math of herd immunity later in the, the um, term, but um, they're, not, they're not immune to the disease from spreading um, as a population yet. That's called herd immunity. Uh, but it does mean that it's going to have a harder time. And I, I, I suspect that uh, this drop is caused by behavior, but also probably even more so uh, because so many people are, are, are immune to the disease uh, in New York. So that's pretty interesting. Um, that number of between 10 and 20% uh, also jives with uh, what we know about um, how many people have died from, from COVID-19 in New York. And if we know that there's a 1% uh, death mortality rate for COVID-19, that would mean that for every person that died with COVID-19, times that number by 100, and that should give you the total population of people um, that actually do have COVID-19. So that calculation um, actually makes sense with this 10 to 20% uh, number. And so I am, I am pretty confident in those, in those studies. Okay, so I don't know, there's a mixture of responses of the disease, it's a patchwork. We're a patchwork country and it's a patchwork um, in how it's affecting different states at different times. And so we do have to think locally and focus on the dynamics in our communities and be responsive to any increases in the disease. I always like to give a little good news about the technology development in treating COVID-19. Um, and it does appear that there is maybe another strategy that we haven't talked too much about. It's a, a human monoclonal antibody. Um, and so basically we talked about that plasma technique of taking out the plasma from a patient that has uh, uh, recovered from COVID-19 and giving it to a patient that is experiencing a bad case of COVID-19. Um, and this is conceptually very similar. Uh, what you're delivering in that plasma is um, our antibodies. And uh, what this is, is uh, being able to identify a human antibody, a single one. That's why it's, it's called monoclonal. Um, and you can even produce these in the lab, um, and then you can administer them as, um, as a therapy. And it turns out that uh, this one that they've identified, um, so the name of it is 47D11. Um, it uh, is obviously, it's having effects on both uh, reducing the infection uh, caused by SARS-CoV, so that's the original SARS, and SARS-CoV-2. Um, so it seems like it's a very generic uh, antibody that uh, will be effective at, at suppressing SARS-CoV-2, um, but also other coronaviruses as well. So that's encouraging. That's also encouraging because 
if it has this sort of broad spectrum in ability to combat, combat disease, then it must be targeting something that's very generic and general to these viruses. And those features tend to be conserved in evolution. And so it would be unlikely for SARS-CoV-2 to be able to evolve to avoid this antibody. Of course, evolution is tricky. Maybe they would be able to, but, but this, is, this is really hopeful uh, news. Uh, so of course, there's lots more development that has to be done on, on this therapy, but it just shows you another angle on which people are trying to develop effective therapies. We have you know, thousands of labs all around the world developing all kinds of new strategies. And so uh, I am hopeful that, hopeful that uh, the disease will be seasonal and we'll have a relief in the summer. And hopefully by the, by the fall, we'll actually have some therapies in place. And then by the winter, maybe even have a vaccine. That's obviously very hopeful, but I think as a species, we, we can, can do it. We certainly should strive for it. And of course, remember, we have remdesivir. Um, it has some effective uh, ability at, at reducing the time that people have the disease. So that's also good news. Okay, so now let's get to uh, the actual uh, lecture, this, this midway review. Let's start from the very beginning uh, and think about just the evolutionary process and how it works. So we have a population of bacterial cells. They are the population size we call N. That's the variable. Um, and, you know, these, these bacteria are all identical to each other at first. And um, as they grow and as they grow and they divide, uh, eventually one of the bacteria is going to get one single mutation in one base of its DNA. Um, and so as the population grows more and more, there'll be more and more mutations. Um, so the time that it takes for a population to go from N to 2N is called the doubling time. That's this TD variable listed on the screen. Um, and that is literally just the time that it takes to, to, uh, from one cell to turn into two cells or for a population of N to turn into a population of, of 2N. This doubling time is directly re related uh, to the growth rate that we talked about. So the growth rate is R, the growth rate is given um, in this exponential growth equation here, uh, and the doubling time is directly related as in it is LN2, so that's just a number, um, divided by R. So it's directly related, but remember, and it's kind of fun to think about sometimes, it's inversely related. So as the, and this makes a lot of sense, as the uh, growth rate becomes faster and faster and faster, the time it takes a cell to go from one to two cells will shrink down lower and lower and lower and lower. Um, so we're just remember that, that they are directly related, but in a, in a reverse, um, um, inverse uh, fashion. So these mutations will accumulate, and they, they accumulate at a very predictable rate. Um, so once you, once you know a mutation rate, uh, then, it's, then it's easy to predict um, as a population is growing roughly how many mutations will occur in that population. Remember, mutations are random, so this is just an estimate. It's a kind of average behavior, um, but, but you're, we can be pretty good at predicting uh, roughly how much genetic variation would be in a population. And so we talked about um, three types of mutation rates. Um, there's the mutation rate per genome replication, that's mu g. So that's just the rate at which you get one mutation in the entire genome. And then there's the per base mutation rate. 
That is looking at just a single base in the genome, what's the rate at which that base will change as the cells are dividing? Um, and so the mutation rates, the per base and the per genome mutation rates um, are directly related to each other in that um, the per base mutation rate is going to be the per genome mutation rate uh, divided by the number of nucleotides in the genome. Uh, so when you're answering these mutation rate questions, always ask yourself whether or not you can um, find the per base mutation rate. And that's sort of the, the baseline mutation rate. And then you can calculate, you know, what's the mutation rate given a gene of a thousand bases or what's the mutation rate given a genome of a million bases or so forth. So always break it down to the mu b and then build it back up to say, what's the frame that I'm looking at? How large is that frame? Um, if it's a thousand nucleotides, then I just take that per base mutation rate times a thousand and that'll give me the rate at which I expect to see accumulation of mutations in that gene. And um, we actually talked about uh, a really interesting experiment, this Laurie and Dalbrook experiment uh, that proved that mutations were spontaneous and were not induced by the environment. Um, and uh, it also, in the same study, they gave us the math to translate the data from their experiment into calculating a mutation rate. Uh, and this is the, the zero method that I talked about with you guys. Um, and so here's the, the equation for the zero method. Um, and uh, you actually combine these two equations together. So you, you find M first, and then you can solve for mu R. Okay, so there's a lot going on on the screen. Uh, so let's just sort of walk through one, one bit at a time. Mu R is the rate of mutations, not, it's, it's a per genome rate of mutation, but it's not of any site in the genome that can mutate. It is focusing on the number of sites in the genome that confer uh, resistance to a phage or maybe resistance to an antibiotic. Um, and so mu r is the per genome mutation rate, but of this phenotype that is resistance to um, you know, something like, like an antibiotic or, or, or a phage. So uh, this is our way to calculate um, mutation rate, and we can then compare mutation rates across different uh, species or so forth, or to different antibiotics. Um, but unless we know the number of sites in the genome that if they mutate um, can give you resistance to the, the drug or the phage, um, then we don't really know, we can't convert the mu R into mu B and then into a, a mu G. But if we do know the number of sites, so say there's 10 sites in the genome that uh, if, if they change, they give you mu R, um, then you can easily convert mu R uh, into a per-base mutation rate, um, and then you can convert that per-base per mutation rate into a per-genome mutation rate if you know the number of bases uh, in the total genome. Do make sure that you understand how to convert from mu R to mu B to mu um, mu G. Uh, and so this is just a list of what all these variables are. You want to solve for M. That's what you don't know. Uh, you know N, that's the number of cells uh, in, the, in the test tube. 
um, at the end of the experiment. So that's the, basically the number of opportunities where um, the, a mistake could have occurred and a mutation could have occurred. Uh, and then P0 is just the number of plates that have no colonies on them at all. Uh, it's the, it's the, the proportion, the fraction. Um, and uh, then mu r is the per genome replication rate for resistance mutations. And so you can just plug and chug and solve the, solve the um, problem. So basically, you can calculate the average number of mutations that occurred in these test tubes. Um, but if you want to then get that number and make it more relevant, turn it into a per genome mutation rate. Um, that's why you divide by n. That's the number of genomes that were in the test tube. And so that gives you the per genome mutation rate. Okay, so we get a mutation. This is, this is uh, I'm just showing you uh, just sort of the, the um, how I'm gonna be using these different symbols uh, through the next set of slides where, you know, this is the ancestral DNA. And here, right in the middle of the sequence, there is a, a G has turned into an A. Okay. So um, some mutations actually have very little to no effect at all on the phenotype. And so these mutations um, are affected strongly by this process called genetic drift. So evolution isn't just about natural selection. There's other evolutionary processes that also drive changes in frequencies of genes through time, um, and one of these processes is genetic drift. So genetic drift um, acts most efficiently when uh, mutations don't have any effect on the phenotype and are considered neutral, um, but genetic drift also does influence the dynamics of mutations that uh, are beneficial or are deleterious. And in previous lectures, we, we talked about how um, you know, in very small populations, genetic drift takes over, but in very large populations, um, natural selection will take over. But both of these things are happening um, all the time on every single mutation. It just matters less. Genetic drift matters less if, uh, if the, the mutation has a beneficial or deleterious effect. Okay, so let's focus just on genetic drift for now. And so it's, a, it's sort of a random process. You know, we talked about flipping a coin. We went through that whole um, uh, procedure where I was flipping the coin and um, replicating cells on the whiteboard. And so picture that, remember that, that demonstration, um, and think about how this is a random procedure. And so here's just some text that goes over that. Imagine that each generation the cell divide, cells divide they double their numbers, but the environment can only support the initial number of cells, so half of these cells are randomly removed. Sometimes we randomly remove a disproportionate amount of the mutant or non-mutant. Randomly, the mutant can increase in frequency and fix or decrease and drop out of the population. So that's what these, um, these images of these populations through time um, are trying to describe uh, early dynamics in this scenario or that scenario, where you have the, the mutant, even though it's not beneficial, increasing in frequency through time and eventually fixing. Um, here, 
the mutant is not deleterious, but it comes into the population and then drops back out of the population for random reasons. If this is confusing, there are actually a ton of YouTube videos. Um, so if you if you, you didn't follow on the board when I was doing that, um, definitely go on YouTube, type in neutral genetic drift, and there'll be a ton of videos about it. So check those out. Okay, so um, you know evolution. Our goal in this class is to predict evolution, to understand the processes so that we can predict whether or not diseases will evolve, how they'll evolve, whether or not that evolution is bad for us, and if it is bad for us, how we can actually stop it. And so right now, at this point in the, the lecture and in, in the course, uh, I've, I've told you about random mutations, and now I'm telling you about random genetic drift. And so how do you predict a process that's so contingent on randomness? Well, there are behaviors, just like there were, there were predictable behaviors about um, related to predicting genetic variation caused by a certain mutation rate um, and a certain amount of growth in the population of cells. Uh, for genetic drift, there's also other predictable behaviors. So for genetic drift, um, we know that drift is stronger when the population size is smaller. And the way that you can understand this is that if you're, it's a coin flip process, right? And so if you only flip a coin three times, there is some chance that you would get three heads. You know, it's, it's not unimaginable that that would happen. But if you, if you flip that coin 30 times, it becomes nearly unimaginable that you would get 30 heads in a row. Um, and so that's, that's basically the, the same idea with genetic drift, that there's more stochasticity in small, in the outcome of evolution, small populations uh, than in large populations. And so, of course, if you have an infinitely large population, that's the scenario where drift goes away completely. Um, but if you, uh, if you don't have an infinitely large population, i.e. every population that exists, then there's some level of stochasticity and some, some level of drift. We talked about in class how, you know, if you are given a mutation that has a 1% fitness benefit in a haploid population, um, that once you get to a population size of about a thousand or more, then drift really has little effect on determining whether or not that mutation fixes um, in the population. And so that's kind of the cutoff threshold where you really have to focus on selection more than drift. Um, but these drift is always happening at any, any population size. It has just a smaller effect at these larger population sizes. So one of the predictable things that we can, um, we know about drift is that the frequency of a given allele is its probability to fix in the population. Therefore, one minus the frequency is the probability that it'll go extinct in the population. And from that, you can uh, easily derive that a new mutation, which is just one individual in the population gaining a mutation, is one divided by the total population size, gives you the, the frequency, or the, I'm sorry, um, the probability that it'll fix uh, in that population. And so obviously that, that probability is low, you know, when you're just a single mutation, uh, and the probability of that new mutation of going extinct is pretty high. Um, but it's a, it's a function of the, the total population size uh, of the population. Uh, and so that, that 1 over n is just, it's, it's just frequency. It's a way of describing the frequency of a brand new mutation. A brand new mutation, by definition, is just in one genome in the entire population. 
So um, this is this is demonstrating the simulations that I ran uh, for a population that was uh, size 20 and uh, showing that in just one out of 20 simulations, uh, we actually saw the neutral allele fix in the population. So this is consistent with that, that theory. Um, you know, you could have 20 simulations where none, none of the mutations fix. Um, you could have 20 simulations where multiple mutations fix. It's just this one, um, this, this is a probability, and so this is the sort of average behavior, um, but it's not, it's not definite because it's still based on a, a stochastic process. Um, you can see, so this is generation on the x-axis and on the y-axis. These are just different individuals, so it's not really an axis. These are just 20 individuals in the population that, that replicate. Some of them do not replicate. Other ones replicate multiple times. Um, and so from one generation to the next, you have this stochasticity and this drift of the, um, the mutant allele. And in this population, you can see the red allele has spread and fixed. So another characteristic behavior of neutral genetic drift um, is this neutral mutation sub, or rate of neutral mutation substitutions. Um, and it is directly equal to the mutation rate. So I went over this a lot in class. I think it's really elegant and I really like this conclusion. And it's important for understanding because it's the backbone of why we trust things like molecular clocks. Uh, we talked about molecular clocks. They won't be on the exam uh, for the midterm. They will be on the, the final. Uh, we talked about them two lectures ago. So, um, and it's this really nice thing where uh, uh, the, the equation that we would write in order to predict the neutral mutation or rate of neutral mutation substitutions is right here. So wait, let me, let me just describe first what is rate of neutral mutation substitution. So say you're given a gene and has a thousand base pairs in it. What I'm asking you is, what's the rate at which that gene, that frame that you're looking at in the genome, uh, would accumulate mutations through time? And so that, that gene is going to mutate often um, during, during the, as cells are dividing and during multiple generations of evolution. But many of those mutations will actually just be lost randomly from the population. Actually, the majority of those mutations will be lost. And so what a substitution rate is, it's not a mutation rate, it's the rate at which a sequence across many, 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 many generations um, will accumulate genetic differences. And so that rate is determined by two different processes. Of course, the first process is the influx of new mutations. And so that's what I'm showing you here are two different populations of two different sizes. And we walked through this a lot and did the math behind it um, in, the, in the drift lecture. But um, what I'm showing is that there's a certain rate at which you get new mutations. And um, that, that is a product of the per base mutation rate times the, the um, the genome, the genome size, and then also times the number of genomes in the population, the N. And so that's, that is this, this um, mutation rate. Um, and so that is determining how many mutations are influxing into the population. And then, but that's not determining the substitution rate. 
you have to, if you're going to substitute uh, a site in, in that gene, that rare mutation now has to spread in the population and fix. When that fixation happens, that's when substitution happens. And so um, there is some, mo- all of these mutations, most of them will actually just come into being and then drop back out of the population for random reasons. But, you know, one divided by the total population size, so for here, one in 10, um, will spread through the population randomly fluctuating until it fixes in that population. And so that is when you, you count it as a neutral substitution. And so the rate of, um, the rate of neutral substitution is going to be a product of the population size times the underlying mutation rate. This is a per genome. Uh, mutation rate, or if you're looking at just a single gene per gene mutation rate. So that's why I haven't designated um, what exactly uh, the, the, the B or the G or whatever is here. Um, you have to sort of alter it by the, the frame at which you're looking at in the genome. Um, so total population size times the mutation rate. And then this, so this is the influx. This is the red, red ticks on the graph. And then this is the chance that any of those mutations actually fixes. That combines together to give you the rate at which you get this event happening. That's a neutral substitution. And um, what is really nice is that N is in the new denominator and is also in the numerator. And so this simplifies out to just the mutation rate. And so mutation rate will be mu B times the number of nucleotides that you're studying. Okay, so I really love that. Um, it just, it's nice that it simplifies down. Um, and so we have a reliable way to actually clock how long ago two different organisms diverged from each other just by looking at their modern sequences and counting up the number of differences. One other um, predictable feature of neutral uh, genetic drift is that um, if a mutation does fix, so most neutral mutations don't fix, they drop out of the population. But if a mutation does fix, um, it is on average going to take two NE generations. And so this is something that we went over thoroughly in the homework. So make sure to evaluate, uh, reevaluate that. Um, but what I'm showing you here are 10 different population genetic simulations for a population size of 10. Um, and so we see that one in 10 did uh, fix in the population. So that's consistent with our, um, with our predictions that um, one divided by N is uh, the, the probability that mutation will fix. So N here is 10, so one in 10, um, 10 simulations. So, um, but the other thing that, that is in line with our, our theory is that it's taken about 20 generations um, to, to actually fix in this population. That's not a hard rule, that's just an average behavior. Um, but it is, um, if you look at enough simulations, you will find that uh, it is uh, 2NE, the average time it takes for a new mutation to go from one mutation to, to uh, fix in the population. So um, population size matters for neutral genetic drift and so how do you calculate population size if the population is fluctuating up and down, up and down, up and down? 
Um, and we went over this, um, this different way of calculating the average, the harmonic mean. Um, and what this does is shows you that uh, the bottlenecks, the low population sizes, have a disproportionate effect on um, the effective population size. So this idea, this is a new, new variable, NE is the effective population size. So NE will equal N if there's no population fluctuations. But if it does fluctuate, then you have to use this harmonic mean to, um, to calculate uh, what the effective population size is. Okay, so that's the case if that new mutation is neutral. But what if that new mutation is beneficial or deleterious? What happens if it actually changes that amino acid in a way that affects the fitness of the organism? And so there's, you know, obviously two, two possibilities if it's affecting fitness. One is that it's improving the fitness of the organism. And so what will happen there is that that uh, mutation will relatively rapidly fix in the population um, in a much more deterministic way than uh, mutations that fix due to neutral genetic drift. Uh, if that mutation is deleterious, it will actually really rapidly drop out of the population in a much more deterministic and faster way than due to neutral genetic drift. So mutations um, have kind of a spectrum of different effects on fitness. Remember, fitness is basically how fast a mutant grows compared to how fast the wild type grows, or how fast the evolved genotype grows compared to its ancestor. And uh, so this is just a hypothetical, hypothetical distribution of mutational effects. So this is just a histogram. This is the number of mutations that have different effects on fitness. And so we would hypothesize that there'd be a glut of mutations that have no effect at all on proteins, um, that there'd be some small number of mutations that would improve the organism's fitness. You know, we think most biological systems have been evolving for a very long time, and so they're probably fairly optimal. And so there's few ways for uh, biological systems to improve above what they've already optimized. And so that's why we, we think that this is sort of, there's relatively few beneficial mutations. There's lots of deleterious mutations, and then there's a lot of mutations that completely screw up the cell or screw up the the virus in a way that uh, causes it not to be able to replicate. Um, and so that's obviously a dead end once you get that kind of mutation. So this is not just theory, we can actually measure it. We've measured it in lots of different organisms. Now this is one of the first, uh, this isn't a virus, um, so it's relevant for this course. Um, and uh, yeah, it shows you that the distribution is very much like we thought, lots of ways to completely destroy the replication of the virus. Um, an influx of neutral mutations here, uh, and then um, just a small subset of the mutations are actually beneficial. Okay, so if we do have a beneficial mutation, um, can we make predictions? Or, so first, can we measure how beneficial that mutation is? And then can we um, use that measurement of its benefit in order to predict how fast it'll spread through the population um, and how fast it'll even fix in the population. Or um, we have an equation where we saw that we could say in 10 generations in the future, how common do we think this mutation will be? What frequency will it be at? Uh, and so this is, um, this is our, our measurement, uh, our way of estimating Darwinian fitness. Uh, this is W. 
and this is W for the evolved. And so we have the growth rate of the evolved divided by the growth rate of the ancestor. And what is growth rate? Well, this is an equation that we derived from that exponential growth equation. And that growth rate R is equal to LN, the number of cells at the time point at the end of the experiment. Remember, we're running these competition experiments in order to measure um, R, measure relative R, and be able to estimate um, fitness. And so we measure the number of cells of a given type at time point one, number of cells at a given time point, cells at a given time point or time point zero, um, and then we divide that by time. I remember one of the shortcuts to uh, calculating this is that time as long, because these experiments are being run as a competitive experiment where the cells are growing for the same amount of time, time then um, gets divided out. It's the same in the numerator and denominator. And so really you just have to calculate um, the, the numerator up here for the R's and not worry about time. Okay. Um, so that's how we calculate relative fitness based on different exponential growth rates. Um, and then, you know, we had all of these um, different equations. Um, so this is the exponential growth equation where we, where we find R. Um, then once we find R, we can calculate the doubling time. And then when we have the doubling time, you know, that really gives us a, a parameter for how fast these things are growing. Um, and then we can plug that doubling time into this larger equation, um, which uh, predicts the frequency of the evolved allele at some time point in the future based on where it is right now and relative to how well it grows, so its doubling time compared to its doubling time of the ancestor. So this is making prediction if you just have two types growing with one another, you have the ancestor and the evolved type, um, you can predict how abundant that evolved type will be uh, in the future. So one of the things that I had brought up early in the lecture about natural selection, which I did not have the chance to really explain very well um, and to get back to later in the lecture, is that in this course we're going to kind of we're going to talk about two qual qualitatively different types of beneficial mutations. And I just want you to sort of be able to sort of understand why they're different and to square that so that um, you don't get confused sort of later on in the lecture. So what we're talking about here um, with this relative fitness, I said before, is really um, you can observe on this massive Petri dish where uh, genetic mutants of bacteria are competing with each other for space and resources on this giant Petri dish. Um, the giant Petri dish also has a um, gradient of antibiotics. And so the ancestor isn't able to move into this section of the plate until it gets a resistance mutation. And so I had said before that, you know, what, what we're calculating is basically the relative size of these fans. And so the red is doing really well. That mutant there um, can grow really well in this, um, in this antibiotic environment, whereas this blue mutant can grow there, but it's not doing nearly as well as the red. And certainly the yellow is not doing as well and the orange aren't doing as well. Um, and so if you're, if you're looking at this equation and you're sort of wondering to yourself like, well, how can I visualize this? This is how you can visualize it. You can look at these, at these shapes 
that I've taken from the plate, these what I would call fan sizes. They don't quite look exactly like a fan, but you can see what I'm talking about. Um, and really, what you're doing in this calculation is seeing sort of how much this, this genotype has grown and how much this genotype has grown. And you're just making a, uh, you're, you're, you're taking the log, that's just because things grow exponentially, but then you're comparing how much that, that growth has happened, um, relative, so the red relative to the blue. And so really you're, you're comparing sort of this log transformed area versus this log transformed area, uh, and that's what's giving you the relative fitness. So it's really simple to see sort of how that equation relates to these bacteria growing, you know, some growing faster than each other and pushing each other out of, out of, the, out of the Petri plate and eventually out of the population. But there's this other kind of um, adaptive mutation that's happening where mutations are actually giving you the ability to go into a higher dosage of the drug and then another higher dosage and another higher dosage and so on. And this kind of adaptation is very significant. Um, it's actually allowing the bacteria to grow in a completely new environment. So it's, it gets released from competing with its ancestor because it is able to um, go into a space that the ancestor can't even grow in. And so if you use this equation to describe what's happening here, the equation actually breaks. Um, and so it really is a, it's a quantitatively and a qualitatively different type of natural selection. So what's happening here is that, so say we have fitness of the resistance and we're comparing the fitness of the resistance uh, compared to the sensitive and we're, we're measuring this fitness in the presence of the drug. And so in the presence of the drug, um, you know, the, the resistant one, it's going to grow. So you're going to have a high number here and a low number here. Um, and then, but down here, this guy is unable to grow in the presence of the antibiotic. And so say this is a bacterial static antibiotic and you have one cell here in the initial, well, you'll have one cell at the final as well. So if the initial minus the, or the initial divided by the final, or the, I'm sorry, if the final divided by the initial are the exact same, you'll get a value of one. So LN1 actually equals zero. So it just breaks this, it just breaks this equation down. And so uh, you really, you can see mathematically why this type of adaptation is different. Um, but you can also sort of see just more kind of holistically that this is, you know, gaining the ability to grow in a space where the ancestor was unable to grow. Um, so this is all you really have to do in order to predict um, the spread of the antibiotic resistant type relative to the ancestor is just consider how fast the antibiotic resistant type is growing because that ancestor is no longer a competitor. It's either killed by the antibiotic or unable to grow. So I hope that makes sense, you know, how these, these two types of selection are different. Um, some people call them soft selection and hard selection, but that's used in different ways um, throughout the literature. So I would just sort of focus on um, competing for resources versus um, gaining antibiotic resistance and gaining the ability to uh, inhabit new spaces. So what we learned is that that benefit of a mutation, even a resistance mutation, is often contingent 
on the genome that occurs in. Some genomes, those beneficial mutations will have large effects. Other genomes, it could actually even have deleterious effects. And so this is a concept called epistasis, and it's that there's sort of mutation by mutation interactions in genomes, um, and that they uh, affect how beneficial or whether or not a mutation is actually beneficial. And so we talked about this concept of the fitness landscape, and I just want to show you sort of how epistasis would work in this fitness landscape. So say, you know, you have, you have these different points. So these are, these are genotypes um, of bacteria, for instance, or, or some kind of organism. Um, they vary in their traits or they vary in their genotypes. And so that's what the x-axis is, is, is showing us, is that these are not the same organisms. They have different genomes. They have different phenotypes. Um, and then we have this fitness function that relates this trait or this genetic space um, to how fit uh, a particular organism will be. And so often we think of these fitness functions as being hills, where this is the most optimal genome that you could possibly get. If you move down, this is suboptimal on either side of that, that hill. And so say you have a mutation that moves, moves you to the right, you know, adds, a, adds an extra mutation or gives you some kind of um, increases the gene expression of an efflux pump or something like that. Um, so that, that mutation, it moves you in this phenotypic space or in this genetic space on the x-axis over this, this much. And so if you move over this much and your starting point is here, then you're going to gain a ton of fitness. If you move over this much and your starting point is here, you're going to gain fitness, but not as much. If you move over that much, you overshoot optimality, then you're going to even decline in fitness even more than you already started out at. And so, um, you know, this is not just theory. We have an example in class that we'll get to in a second. The way that you can imagine this um, is, say this is just one mutation and you know that you need four mutations in order to get optimal drug resistance. And if you overshoot and you have five mutations or six mutations, um, then they're going to take you down in fitness. Um, the way that you can understand this, not just as a sort of abstract number of mutations, but maybe you could understand it um, in terms of mutations that increase the um, uh, production of efflux pumps. So if you have low production of efflux pumps and you increase the production and the presence of antibiotics, that's going to be really good for you. You're going to be able to survive much better um, than your, your ancestor with lower um, expression. Here, if you already have a high level of expression of efflux pumps, you can maybe increasing it will give you a little bit extra benefit. But there's going to be a point where if you overexpress your efflux pumps, you're going to start creating some other problems in the cell. That efflux pump is maybe going to pump out good things that the cell needs. That efflux pump, maybe there's too many of them on your outer membrane, and it's going to, um, it's going to challenge the integrity of the outer membrane and maybe make the cell more susceptible to other things. Um, and so uh, often, you know, there's an optimal level in which you want to express a gene that would be here for the efflux pump. If you already have too much efflux pump expression, that's not really helping you out with the antibiotic and it's causing these pleiotropic side effects, then um, you 
don't want to add in more. You don't, this mutation now is deleterious and will compromise the cell even more if you get it. So I hope that's a nice, somewhat clear example on um, how this epistasis works. It's important because it defines how beneficial mutation is, and then that is what we can use to predict evolution. This is that empirical fitness landscape that we measured. I don't want to walk through the details, but the bottom line of this is that there is a fitness peak at four mutations, but if you get five and six and so on, um, you will get you will overshoot that peak and actually drop down in fitness. So this idea of fitness peaks is not just a conceptual thing. It, uh, it comes out in the data as well. One example of epistasis that was giving people a hard time in the lecture that I just want to go over again, and, now, and it's another example of epistasis that hopefully um, crystallizes this concept of uh, genetic dependency. This example was compensatory mutations for antibiotic resistance mutations. And we brought this up in the lecture where we were talking about how to combat antibiotic resistance. And I said, a lot of people, or our first strategy to deal with antibiotic resistance is to limit how much we're using antibiotics because then you won't give uh, bacteria the selective benefit to have that resistance gene. And so it won't spread as quickly in the population. And some people actually have the idea that this should actually lead to the decline of antibiotic resistance genes. And we went over how there's data that actually suggests that even if we stop using antibiotics, the genes for antibiotic resistance are likely to persist for pretty long into the future. And so the problem isn't going to completely go away. Um, and the reason why that is is because of compensatory mutations. So I showed you this graph before, and now I just want to um, give an analogy of what's happening in this graph so that you can um, hopefully gain uh, a more intuitive understanding for how compensatory mutations work beyond just looking at numbers on a, on a graph. Okay, so let's just start here and then we'll walk through the graph. We're going to start out with wild type. Uh, wild type has a certain fitness. Remember, this is the scenario where we have removed the antibiotic and so it's no longer in the environment. It's no longer giving uh, the bacteria a benefit for being able to avoid the antibiotic. And so what we're going to compare it to is a car and getting a, getting a ding on the side of the car. So we'll, we'll, I'll walk, walk you through that. So just imagine you have a wild type, you have this car here. You get resistance, and that resistance was to avoid an antibiotic. I haven't thought through this analogy completely yet, so hopefully it works. But maybe you swerved to avoid uh, getting hit. Um, and in doing that, you hit the side of a wall. So you survived, uh, but now your car has a little bit of damage. So you, you survived the antibiotic, but now, you're, now your cell has a little bit of damage. So when you get that resistance mutation to avoid the antibiotic, it often um, interferes with some kind of cellular process. So maybe it's a resistance mutation in the penicillin binding site in the protein um, uh, penicillin binding protein. And uh, that allows you to avoid uh, the impact of penicillin on that protein. But now that protein, it was optimized before by natural selection, and now it has a new mutation, and now it's suboptimal. 
So think of that, that mutation. It allowed you to avoid this collision, but it had this cost and that it, it caused a scrape in the side of your car. And so that scrape is this cost. The difference between where fitness started to where fitness was with the mutation is the cost. It's the scrape. So then you can get a second mutation, maybe in that protein or somewhere else in the genome, that repairs that protein. And so it fixes the protein so it no longer has to pay that cost. So that would be the equivalent of painting over this scrape so that no, you no longer see the scrape and it, it looks like it's completely restored to new. Now you know that it does have that, that scrape underneath the paint and then the paint has come over and, and, and covered it up. So that's resistance and then compensation. Um, but the effect is that it looks like a brand new car still. So why this is an example of a compensatory mutation is that if you were to take the wild type car that doesn't have the scrape in it and you were to just paint over top the section that should have the scrape, it's going to look exactly the same. You're not going to see any difference in these two different cars. That's the same as with the wild type comparison of the fitness to uh, a mutant that has just the compensatory mutation. They have identical fitnesses. So this benefit that's caused by the comp compensatory mutation, this difference between the low fitness of the resistant type to the even fitness of the resistant to and compensatory uh, combination compared to wild type, that, that benefit only is given by the compensatory mutation if resistance is there. There's no benefit to having that compensatory mutation otherwise. It's the equivalent of just painting over top a perfectly well-painted car. Okay, I hope that makes more sense now. Okay, so we've started to talk about antibiotic resistance. Um, so let's, let's sort of re review what we've learned about antibiotic resistance. There's lots and lots of different mechanisms for that antibiotics work, and therefore different mechanisms for antibiotic resistance, including efflux pumps, um, changing the binding site of the uh, protein target of antibiotics, or closing the door on the antibiotics, or um, changing something about the outer membrane that deflects the antibiotics. So lots of different ways in which bacteria can become resistant. Um, and the way that we measure resistance is by this experiment where we calculate MIC versus MBC. We've gone over this a lot in the class, so I'm not gonna go over it too much again and talk about the details of the experiment. But one thing that trips up everybody, which I just, I don't want you guys to get tripped up on, is when you're looking at this row of different concentrations of drugs and different growth, growth of the bacteria, this is growth, this is no growth, um, you know, your eye immediately goes to where it changes. Okay, so that's, that's what we're looking for, where it changes. And so then the question is, oh, is this the MIC, the min minimum inhibitory concentration, or is this the MIC, the, the min minimal inhibitory concentration? And this is the one, and it makes complete sense once you think about it, that this is the level of the drug in which you get inhibition. inhibition. So this is a minimal inhibitory concentration. This is, you know, a concentration of the drug that's high, and but the bacteria can still grow. The same goes for MBC. Um, remember, this is this is for how much 
of the drug inhibits growth, and then this is for how much of the drug is needed to actually kill off the bacteria. Sometimes they're identical to each other for a bacterial um, cytor or bacteriolytic antibiotic, um, or sometimes they're separated like this, um, which gives you kind of a, a hybrid. At some concentrations, it's bacterial cytal. Some concentrations, it's bacterial static. So in the next lecture, after we talked about antibiotic resistance, we then moved on and we talked about six different strategies to combating the evolution of antibiotic resistance. And so what I want to do here is roughly go over the strategies and the pros and cons. There's other pros of each strategy and other cons of the strategies, but I think that this gives you an idea of, you know, why none of the strategies is perfect. And so that explains why we have so many different ones um, and how they vary with one another. So strategy number one, we already went over, slowing the use of antibiotics, um, hoping that it will slow down the spread of antibiotic resistance genes. And so this strategy is very easy to do. We just have to be prudent with the use of our antibiotics. That is, you know, we have the technology for that. We, you know, we just stop using them as much. Um, but the, one of the problems with this is that it won't reverse the rise of antibiotic resistance. Um, it'll just slow down the rise of antibiotic resistance. So that's important. That's our front line. Um, but we have to do other things as well to maintain the therapeutic properties of our antibiotics or develop new antibiotics. Another way is this sort of multi-drug treatment where you're giving two antibiotics at the exact same time. Um, this can be effective. It reduces the ability for the bacteria to evolve double resistance. Um, it's harder for the bacteria to do. Um, but you have to make sure that you're using antibiotics that have synergistic interactions with one another. Um, some antibiotics even have suppressive interactions, and so you certainly want to avoid using them. And some combinations of antibiotics uh, can be toxic to the patient, and so obviously you can't use that combination as well. Uh, so that's not foolproof either. Uh, fluctuating drugs, so if you have these combinations that have antagonistic interactions with one another or are toxic to the patient, um, it doesn't mean that you can't use them in combination. You just don't use them at the same time. You use them at fluctuating different, so at, at different times, you're oscillating from one antibiotic to the other. Um, and this is also good. Uh, it can even reduce um, antibiotic resistance or slow down um, the evolution of antibiotic resistance, but only in scenarios where you have collateral sensitivity. If you have cross resistance between the two antibiotics, so a single resistance mutation gives you resistance to not just antibiotic A, but also B, um, then you actually speed up the rate of antibiotic, the evolution of antibiotic resistance. And so that's obviously a problem. So that's not foolproof either. Well, we don't have to just look at antibiotics um, for new strategies. We could also look at um, uh, uh, phages uh, and other, other uh, synthetic biological systems. Uh, and so we looked at uh, phage, a phage, phage slash antibiotic synergistic interaction. This was Paul Turner. Um, and it's a combination of a phage uh, that an antibiotic that reduces the phage or the, the bacteria's ability to evolve resistance to the antibiotic and the phage. Um, and so this is highly effective. One downside of this procedure is that um, if you find a phage for one species of bacteria, or one genotype of bacteria, it's unlikely to work on other genotypes or species of bacteria. And so for each new infection, you, have to, you might have to develop a brand new phage 
and you rely, it's like kind of a fishing expedition to find these phages. There's tons of phages in the world. And so you need the ones that have these synergistic properties. And so you have to rely on luck. Um, certainly you can design efficient ways to screen um, for phages that have the good property, but still whether or not that phage is in your screen is still luck. So that's not ideal either. Well, we could actually design phages so that we put in genes that cause them to have synergistic interactions and we can put in a whole mess of different kinds of genes and that will um, give us a whole rep a huge uh, armory of different ways of, of attacking uh, bacteria. And so that's a good strategy. This is Tim Liu's strategy. Um, but one of the pitfalls there is that this is a genetically modified organism and it's much harder. People are afraid of GMOs um, probably for unfounded reasons, but you know, there are some concerns about GMOs. Um, and so uh, the FDA, it's much harder to get approval to use a genetically modified organism on, you know, on a, on a patient. The last one was gene drives, which was this really effective way to actually attack antibiotic resistance genes, replace them with new DNA that wipes out the antibiotic resistance gene, resensitizing the bacteria, and then hitting the bacteria with antibiotics. This is very effective. It was developed at UCSD, Victor Nize and Ethan Beer. Um, it's in the, the development phases, phase. Uh, it's certainly not approved. Uh, by the FDA, and it's not in a form yet that could be disseminated into a microbial population or into a patient. Um, but but uh, Ethan is taking those steps, and Victor Victor are taking those steps, and hopefully we'll get funding to do that soon. Um, but the question is, people have problems with GMOs. This is a genetic element that actually genetically transforms uh, natural populations of bacteria, transforms them in a way that's helpful to be sensitive to antibiotics but it's a genetic element that is making these transformations. Um, and so if you have problems with synthetic phages that are genetically modified, then you doubly have problems uh, getting approval for something that is an element that genetically modifies natural populations of bacteria. So obviously there's lots of concerns with that um, and uh, there are strategies to dealing with that that are being worked out. Okay, so those are the pros and cons of these different um, uh, different ways to combat antibiotic resistance. If you guys are interested in this stuff, there's other strategies as well. These are the ones that um, I think give you a nice spectrum of, in build up and complexity uh, with how they work. Okay, so in this, in this uh, course, I think one of the most difficult things for students is thinking about biological interactions. And we have a bunch of different interactions and you have to keep track of them and have them straight uh, in your brain so that you, you can uh, answer questions on exams, but also just so you understand what's, what's really happening in, these, um, what in, in, in how these drugs are interacting or genes are interacting or, or whatever. So biology, like the nature of biological systems is that there's all of these interactions. And I would say that these interactions are both beautiful, but they also really drive you insane keeping track of how they work and keeping track of all the different interactions. So I personally love going out into nature and seeing these really complex ecosystems. But 
if you then try to understand how those ecosystems work, you have to understand how species A interacts with species B, interacts with species C, and it becomes a big, nasty food web mess, and it's hard to, hard to really quantify and hard to really understand. Well, the same is true when we think about uh, a single organism, when we start thinking about its genetic networks and its genes within its genomes, and, um, and if we think about therapies and how they're interacting with these different genes, in different aspects of the organism's genetic network, um, it also becomes really complicated. So that complexity I think is beautiful, but it also is just drives you freaking insane. So um, with that in mind, uh, what I wanna do is just go over a couple interactions that we've gone over in the lab, in the, sorry, not the lab, the class. Uh, you can tell that I'm, I'm missing uh, working in my lab. Um, so so that you just have them straight and you, you can see them side by side, visualize them and uh, sort of then move on and, and hopefully have a better understanding of how they work. Okay, <clears throat> so the first thing that we were talking about just now are drug-drug physiological interactions. And so that's when you give, you have two drugs being delivered to the cell at the exact same time and them together will have um, maybe a really deleterious effect on that cell. And so that's a synergistic interaction because now those drugs together team up, combine forces, and wipe out the cell. But they can also have a drug-drug interaction where they interfere with each other. And so their effect on the cell is, is, is minor. And so that if, if there's any kind of drug-drug interaction, um, that's called this physiological interaction, and of course, we have to sort of account for that. So then we have what we call evolutionary interactions. And that is a drug-drug interaction that's facilitated by changes in the genome. So say you have drug A and uh, the, the bacteria is exposed to drug A and it responds in a way that changes its genome, it mutates, so now it's resistant to drug A. Well, that mutation may make it more sensitive, that's collateral sensitivity to drug B, or it may make it more resistant to drug B, that's uh, cross-resistance. And so this is a, a, it's kind of a drug-drug interaction, but it's modulated through the genome and the changes in the genome um, that occur to deal with this first drug. And so this is what we call pleiotropy, where you have a mutation that's adaptive to deal with this perturbation, um, and it has unattended effects on something else. So it can have unattended effects and just make the cell grow slower, or it can make it more sensitive to this antibiotic, or it can also have a dual beneficial effect. It can make it resistant to this antibiotic. And so pleiotropy is this single mutation with multiple phenotypic effects. So sense, uh, resistance to drug A and altered uh, tolerance to drug B. So pleiotropy in general is anytime a mutation has two phenotypic effects, it also happens outside the context of antibiotic resistance. And then the other thing that we've talked about a lot is epistasis. And that's just saying that the effect of mutation A is going to be contingent on whether or not mutation B exists in the genome. 
And so that can be a positive effect or a negative effect. It's just this mutation by mutation interactions. It's the fact that a specific mutation is going to depend, its, its effect is going to depend on the larger genome. And so here are all these interactions side by side so you can understand um, how they relate to each other, and, but mostly so you can be clear which one is which. And so we have looked at these graphs a ton. Left is physiological interactions, right is evolutionary interactions, describing um, good and bad drug-drug interactions, and good and bad um, effects of plyotropic effects of the resistance mutation. We've gone through a lot. I'm gonna let you just sort of um, go back to those other lectures or review this slide. Um, but you know, this certainly will be on the exam. Okay, we're nearing the end, guys. We have two big, um, two big subjects left. One is this equation on the rate of adaptation. This is a conceptual equation that gives us, tells us what kinds of variables we need to know in order to be able to predict the rate of adaptation. How, how fast will a population improve its fitness over time? Uh, this is an equation that's just this conceptual equation that I saw in a talk given by Saliato at the University of British Columbia. Um, she is a great teacher and a great scientist. Uh, and I really like this equation because it, it, it combines a lot of different variables that we've talked about so far in the course. So rate of adaptation is gonna be contingent on population size, number of targets of selection, so number of sites in the genome that are good for a bacteria, good for a virus to, to change, the rate, so the rate at which you get these mutations, um, and how good are these mutations? That's what this is giving you. On average, how much benefit do these L mutations give you? And so if you combine these things together, you'll be able to tell you know, whether or not a population has a lot of potential to adapt or very little potential to adapt. And so we already did this, but let's walk through how this works. If you increase the population size, then you increase the supply of mutations, not because you're altering the mutation rates, but you're just altering um, uh, the number of opportunities. There are four mutations to occur. And so that same logic occurs with this increasing L. That's the number of targets, of, uh, targets in the genome that, are, that yield adaptive mutations. And so if you have more targets, more opportunities to uh, improve, then you're going to increase the rate of mutations that give you a benefit. You're not changing the underlying rate of mutation, um, but you are increasing the number of them that yield beneficial mutations. Um, this is very straightforward. Uh, by increasing the mutation rates, you'll increase the supply of mutations, and eventually some of those mutations will be beneficial, and uh, it'll speed up your adaptation. We looked at data from the Richard Lenski's long-term line experiments that showed us that, in fact, when bacteria evolve higher mutation rates in this experiment, they hit the gas pedal on adaptation as well. Certainly, if your mutation rate got way too high and you started accumulating too many mutations, it would begin, you to, begin to create what we call mutational load and cause the population to collapse, decreasing, obviously, in fitness. But that is a very high mutation rate. that tend, it, it doesn't tend to evolve. It doesn't tend to happen. Um, unless there's something like, you know, UV radiation or something like that uh, hitting the population. 
And so normally, um, mutation rates are relatively low for organisms, and if you increase them, you'll, you'll increase your rate of adaptation. The last one is just this idea of the average benefit of a beneficial mutation. And so if you have more mutations in this region of that histogram that we've already gone over, um, then you're more likely to get a, get a mutation that has a big fitness advantage and uh, accelerate your, your adaptive evolution. Okay, so the very last subject that I want to go over is about SARS-CoV-2 evolution, um, treatment, and uh, then maybe it's counter evolution as well. So we looked at phylogenies before of SARS-CoV-2. This is a simplified version of, of a phylogeny. Um, it's showing you the evolutionary relationship to SARS-CoV um, and to a couple other coronavirus strains that were isolated in other organisms. So one in pangolin, another one in pangolin, one in bat that's very closely related to SARS-CoV-2. Um, and in this diagram, it's just telling you sort of when different events happened in, in history. Um, I didn't go over this specifically before, so don't, don't worry about that on the, on the exam. What we did go over um, was this question of what are the genetic, what are, what are genetic characteristics of SARS-CoV-2 that might have helped it jump into the human population? Um, and so now what I want to do is just go back and talk about these things that we've already talked about, um, but now talk about them with respect to when in the history of the evolution of the strain did these things occur. And so remember, I told you that there were all of these um, insertions in the S protein. So this is the host recognition protein, and this is actually the domain of the S protein that interacts directly um, with that ACE2, the protein on the outer membrane of human cells that um, triggers, that, that S binds to, and then uh, triggers an infection. And so these insertions and deletions happened um, some, some period in this region, right? So they're not in SARS, um, and they're not in some of the strains that occur over here, but they are in, in, in many of these strains out here. And so um, this is when the insertions happened. And I had told you that I have evidence from my lab that when viruses get these kinds of mutations in this kind of protein, that it alters their um, host range. Uh, and so that was my, my, that's why I think that these probably play a key role um, in why SARS-CoV-2 could spread to humans and use that ACE2 receptor on humans. So we also talked about how, yes, SARS-CoV-2 is very similar to a bat strain um, of coronavirus, you know, something like 96% similarity, um, and it has 90% similarity with a pangolin strain, so it's, it's more closely related to this bat strain. Except if you look at one small region of the SARS-CoV-2 genome, if you hone in on that, um, that spike protein, that S, um, there's a, a few amino acids that look much more similar or are, are identical to the, the, the stretch of um, uh, the peptides in pangolin um, compared to 
um, the, the one that are in the bat. And so what we had talked about before is that this looks like a case where there's been recombination and a small segment of this uh, RNA has been recombined with this RNA to give you something that looks like this. Um, and it has been shown uh, that these, these amino acid changes um, that are, are more like the pangolin actually give it uh, increased ability to use human ACE2. So I think it's a combination of these insertions and deletions that happened here, and then this recombination that happened here. And it could have also been other um, single nucleotide substitutions and other changes in the virus that enhance its ability to spread into humans. And now we see the, the consequence of that. The question also is, is now um, going into the future, that's sort of the history getting us to SARS-CoV-2, now looking to the future, um, is this virus continuing to evolve? And yes, of course it is. Although the, the, the nice thing is, is that we know that this virus has a lower mutation rate than most RNA viruses. And so it's actually evolving at a, at a slower rate. Um, and uh, one of the things that we talked about is whether or not it's actually adapting to humans. This is still in question, but there's some preliminary evidence that the S protein is actually adapting and specifically in the receptor binding domain of this protein, this region here, um, it's getting, it's accumulating mutations that are non-synonymous mutations and likely adaptive. Um, and it's influencing, um, these mutations are influencing its ability to bind ACE2. This is not direct data from the lab, but this is um, bioinformatic data that strongly suggests that, that these mutations are increasing its ability to bind. Um, but of course, we have to still do the, do the test. But it does seem certainly that even though it has a slower rate of evolution than most RNA viruses, it is evolving and it probably is adapting to spread in humans. Whether those adaptations hurt us or make the virus more benign uh, is still in question. And so um, I think we just need to learn how it's changing in order to understand not just what, it, you know, what the original strain acted like, but what the modern strain, strains are doing. Uh, it'll help us combat it. Okay, we have one effective therapy so far, um, remdesivir, that has been approved for emergency use in the United States. Um, and since I gave the lecture on remdesivir, there's actually been a study released a little bit more on how remdesivir interferes with that RNA polymerase that we talked about before. And before I had said that it has a structure that's similar to ATP and it inserts itself into the polymerase where ATP would and it interferes with the construction of mRNA strands. And certainly um, that has been confirmed by this study, um, but this study goes into a lot more detail in case you wanna check it out. And remember, um, remdesivir works today, but will it work tomorrow? Uh, there are studies out there looking at resistance mutations to a remdesivir-like molecule, but not in um, SARS-CoV-2. This is before SARS-CoV-2 was even out there. This is in a model coronavirus that I think infects mice, if I remember correctly. Um, but what they found is that there are two mutations in the polymerase of this other coronavirus that um, uh, interferes with the drug's usefulness and interferes with the drug's ability to inhibit the virus. It doesn't completely destroy the, the drug's effect, 
uh, but it does uh, confer some level of resistance just through these two mutations. And these two mutations rose very quickly during their lab experiments. And so it suggests that they could arise in nature. We, these two mutations are occurring at this site and this site in the polymerase. So this is a peptide strand, um, and it's from different, what they've done is they've aligned different um, homologs, so different versions of the same gene in different coronaviruses. Um, and the coronaviruses are, you know, there's a huge diversity of them. Um, but what they find is that no matter what coronavirus they look at, there's always an F here and there's always a V here. So this F corresponds to that F and this V corresponds to that V. Well, in the lab experiments, that V changes to an L and that F changes to an L. Um, and so this is kind of, this has two important points we can make from, from this observation. One is that, you know, this, um, these, even though this study was done on a different coronavirus, these are conserved locations in all coronaviruses. And so it suggests that if, if SARS-CoV-2, since it also has this, um, um, this amino acid, or it likely does, um, then changing it might be able to confer resistance to um, remdesivir. But it also has, there's a, there's a good side to that. So that's the bad side, but there's a flip side. And it suggests that if these sites are really well conserved, you know, we, see, we don't see any amino acid variation at these positions in the protein. That suggests that these, the way that these mutation, the way that these amino acids work um, has a big effect on how the polymerase works. And so if they mutate it, it's going to have this huge pleiotropic cost and so it's going to handicap the virus. And so there's some, there's some idea that, well, maybe they can evolve resistance, but maybe that resistance will be obviously really bad for the virus. And so it might not be able to spread as well if it has these resistance mutations. Of course, that good thing has the caveat that we know that compensatory mutations can evolve in proteins. And nobody has studied compensatory mutations to these uh, mutations yet, but uh, I bet that they're available and I bet that the virus could evolve them. So I think we do have to, as we start to use remdesivir, be very careful uh, not to select for resistance mutations, or if we do, to isolate people that have the virus, that have the resistance mutations, so that that virus doesn't spread, um, rendering our therapy useless. So this is just the experimental data that supports um, the observation that these, these mutations are for resistance. Remember this, how to read this um, plot in that we were calculating um, the EC50 from the, these kinds of plots. Um, and uh, we can see that the EC50 is higher, higher concentration is used to um, prohibit the uh, growth of the, the virus. So uh, remember what EC50 is, CC50, and SI. So this is inhibiting 50% growth inhibition of the virus. This is 50% toxicity uh, on uh, the cells in the cell culture. You want this to be high. You want this to be really low. And so you can look at this selectivity index, which is just the ratio of um, this to this. So if this is really high, so it takes a huge dose of drug um, to really damage the cells, 
and this is low, it takes a very low dose of drug to inhibit the virus, then this SI index is going to be really high. Um, and that's an indication that that's a, a, a likely drug that, that will work without harming uh, the patients. And so that's very good. Okay. So remember how to look at those graphs and calculate those different things um, and, and remember that equation. Thank you guys. Uh, we're halfway through uh, and um, the next half is going to be much more applied and focused on um, actual diseases and not just these, these sort of concepts and understanding evolution. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.